This is the Academic Survival Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Chandra McDonald. Statistics show that approximately 40% of students drop out of college every year. In fact, nearly 30% drop out their first year. Well, I am on a mission to improve these stats. Many of us know someone with a substance abuse problem. For some of you, you are that someone. For me, when I was little, it was an uncle. Well, actually, two uncles and an aunt, and some cousins along the way. But one specific uncle stands out to me. He was the one who died from cirrhosis of the liver when he was only 36 years old. Do you know how much alcohol you have to consume to destroy your liver by the age of 36? I tell you. That's a lot of alcohol. Well, it's not a secret that drugs and alcohol are present on college campuses. Some students arrive on campus with a well-established substance abuse problem. And some students may have developed the problem while on campus. Today, I'm going to introduce you to Nico Morales. I have uh, alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder, opiate use disorder are the current terms uh, that are politically correct. Chop down, I'm an addict. Nico began using substances when he was just 14 years old. His alcohol and opioid use destroyed his relationships with his friends and his family. It even impacted his college career. But he made a comeback. He wrote a book titled Five Things to Know Before You Get Sober. And he's here today to tell us his story and to share just how he got sober. Today is a special episode of Academic Survival dedicated to my uncle, Samuel McDonald. Thank you for joining me on Academic Survival. Uh, Today, we are going to be speaking with uh, Nico Morales, and he is going to talk to us a little bit about um, the the journey of of consuming alcohol and where it can lead you and, and the other side of it in terms of, in terms of recovery. So Nico, um, welcome to Academic Survival and go on ahead and let everyone uh, know a little bit about your background and let's get started on your story. Sweet. Well, thank you for having me, Dr. McDonald. Uh, my name is Nico Morales. I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, been out of school, shoot, for more than 10 years. Um, my background is checkered, I guess is one of the nice ways that people like to call it. Uh, I prefer just to call it what it is. I have uh, alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder, opiate use disorder are the current terms uh, that are politically correct. Uh, chopped down, I'm an addict when it boils down to it in the nicest way. Um, I've learned to claim that term uh, with some positivity to it. Um, so yeah, that's who I am. That's my background. I'm also a published author, uh, international published author. Let me say that international public speaker. Um, I have acquired a bachelor's degree of education, uh, small business owner. I identify as a Latino male. Um, so yeah, that's, that's who I am. All right. All right. So tell me, um, when was your first introduction to drugs and or alcohol? That's a great question. Um, my first introduction to any sort of substance, um, probably around the age of 10. 
um, just saw it around my family, saw it around uh, the individuals that I looked up to, the older males that were drinking. And about age 10, that's when I kind of wanted to have my own drink and be like them, hold my beer in my hand. Uh, but they wouldn't let me. You know, a lot of that monkey see, do what I tell you to, not what I do. Um, happened in my environment. So, I was about age 10 that I started getting curious about substances and uh, chemicals that would change the way that I thought. Uh, wow. Wow. So, started at age 10 in terms of you, your exposure, but what about your usage? When did that start? I started using substances when I was 14 years old. I was a freshman in high school. And I can remember the day vividly. Um, I was leaving school, um, didn't have any extracurricular activities to do at that time. So one of the guys that I was hanging out with was like, I'll take you home. On the ride home, he had already had um, a rolled cigar with cannabis inside of it. It's also called a blunt. Um, And he he was smoking it. He passed it over to me. And that's when I first smoked. Uh, from there, we went to, we didn't even go to my house. We went somewhere else, one of the buddies' houses, and we continued to smoke more cannabis. So, I'm about 14 uh, when I first consumed any type of narcotic. Wow. Okay. So, you're not, you're 14, and I, and I imagine at some point that day you had to go home, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, I did have to get home. What was that like? I'm sure you kind of smelled a little interesting. <laughs> Uh, um, yes, I did smell a little bit interesting. Um, that's one indicator of somebody's use. When I got home, there wasn't anybody there. The way that it worked out is that nobody was going to get home for a few hours. So I had some time to be by myself, get my clothes and, you know, spray them, cover them up with that Axe body spray and say, oh, I had a hard day of practice today. No, not the Axe body spray. (laughs) Axe body spray mixed with some cannabis. You know, I heard at one point they were banning that in some schools, the Axe body spray. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's for the smell, probably. That stuff stunk. (laughs) So then um, tell me a little bit how you felt after you consumed the the blunt. Is it it consumed or should I say smoked? I smoked it because that's what you do with that. Um, So after I smoked the blunt, I felt lightheaded. I actually felt included. That's That was the biggest feeling. Um, I was like, oh, I actually belong to a community. These these people are looking out for me. They want me to be like them. Um, so I felt included. That was the internal emotion that I felt now that I look back at it. Um, mentally, though, I was like, yo, what is this? It started thinking differently. Um, my brain just felt a little bit lighter. Didn't feel like it was um, racing anymore, um, so it slowed down. And for me, that was that was a nice relief because I have a very fast-paced brain, fast-paced uh, mindset, and so smoking cannabis allowed that to slow down. And the for me, the detrimental part, the part that got me hooked, was that that slowing down gave me uh, time to process what I was doing. Which gave me a better advantage um, is what I perceived. Um, I hadn't learned how to slow down my thinking on my own without consuming something or ingesting something or smoking something. So I missed that part um, in my development. I skipped over it because I chose to smoke. And that's how I chose to train myself to slow down. And that type of training uh, 
continue. Wow, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that, that was a. I didn't know that, that was a thing that um, the whole s- slowing down of the brain and not being able to, um, I guess, basically relying on something else to to help you do that. I think probably because I'm a slow processor to begin with, so you don't want to slow me down because you can be like, "Where are you coming?" <laughs> <laughs> So uh, how about when, but when those effects wore off, um, how did you feel after that? Um, after that, I felt really uncomfortable, really shameful. Um, those are two feelings that I, that I can share. I felt shame um, because I was like, oh, I, I shouldn't need something to feel that good. So I felt shame because I, I really thought something was wrong with me. I was like, y'all, I... <sighs> They say drugs are bad, but when I took it, it felt good. It made me th- think better, cleared up my mind. So there's got to be something wrong with me um, that I can use this type of substance and it benefit me um, because that's how I saw it. I saw it as a healing benefit at the time. Again, I'm 14 years old, underdeveloped mentally, underdeveloped emotionally. Um, so to me, that was... It was both sides of it. I knew it was something I shouldn't do. My conscience told me, yo, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, but also the other side is, hey, it helps. So what's wrong with you that this bad stuff helps you? Does that mean that you're bad too? So I felt shame. Yeah. Wow. So then you're 14 and then just based on what you shared, you know, in your intro, apparently this this behavior um, continued beyond <laughs> beyond the age of fourteen. So, what um, in what way did your behavior change overall, or did it? Um, you know, like the prolonged use of it. Did your behavior change overall, and if so, like what impact did that have on your friendships? That's a that's a loaded question, right there, Doctor McDonald. Um, so the long term implications to yeah implications to what happened um yeah I, I messed myself up pretty bad full transparency if we're just talking like physical starting from the head down i've had my nose broken many times i have my teeth knocked out uh I've broken my hand i've broken my wrist uh torso is pretty intact uh both hips have been replaced i snapped my left tibula in half and i've broken three of my metatarsals in my foot the foot um, those are just injuries that I've had. Uh, not all of them came from substances. Some of them were uh, just random accidents. I say that because the those have implications on how your body functions. So I, I want to connect with the audience that way, right? Like think about that. That's how your body feels. When I was taking substances, my brain was taking those type of damages. So the implications now, uh, I, for me, it takes effort to focus on certain things, um, very much scatterbrained. So I have to be intentional about what I'm doing. Um, I lose thought processes frequently, um, which is uh, very frustrating. I won't lie to you. Um, there's a lot of things that I could probably be way better at and I'm not uh, because of the Choices that I made. Um, that's what it was, is the choices that I made. So there is long-term implications that I 
There was unknown consequences that I didn't even know could happen. And then there's, of course, the known consequences that everybody gets told about. So uh, the long-term implications are still unknown for me um, as regards to like what type of damage am I did I do to myself in my old age, right? I, I don't know um, where I'm at right now. I could tell you, yeah, <laughs> I've messed up my body pretty bad. And um, I shouldn't be this beat up at my age, um, mainly because my decisions put me in positions like that. The second part of your question, um, I don't have any of the friends that I used to have whatsoever. These are both good and bad friends. I'll give you two examples. Uh, We will call one J and we will call one M, just so we don't put any names on it. Uh, J he was a negative influence on my life. Uh, this individual I used to, uh, move work with, uh, we would buy products together. We would sell products together. Uh, we would interact in, um, different illegal activities together. Uh, because of the lifestyle that we chose to live and the consumption of narcotics and alcohol, uh, that relationship got tattered to a point where, um, Jay became an informant uh, with the federal government, and there were some, yeah, there's some, there's some uh, malice that I have towards him. So there's that side of it, right? So ruined relationships, even when I was trying to participate in uh, that lifestyle. On the other side of it, there was a gentleman M who I grew up with. I love him to life, and I still wish blessings over his house. I wish blessings over Jay's house too now, but not, not at the time. Um, M though, me and him, we grew up together and he saw that I was headed down the wrong path and he tried to correct me. He was like, yo bro, you need to, you really need to change how you're living. And if you don't, um, I can't be around you. That was huge for me. Um, that was one of the most impactful conversations that I had ever had because somebody cared enough to say hey um it's not okay how you're living so uh long term wise i don't have any of the relationships that i used to have and i'm okay with it if i can be honest with you it took a while to get over it but uh no it it ruined all relationships for me so your friend who actually um you know, took the time to speak with you and was trying to, in essence, um, put you on a, on, on the right path or basically like tug your, your, your shirt tail, like, Hey, this is not, this is not the path you want to go down. What, um, did you take, did you heed any of that advice? I mean, in hindsight, you know, that it was great advice, right. But at the time, what were your feelings, um, toward, toward him in that, in that discussion? Uh, I was, I had my ego in the way. So, I was upset with him. Uh, I did not heed his advice. I ran into some more problems after that. Um, so no, I didn't take his advice, which I should have. And looking back at it, it was great, um, but it caused me a lot more problems and pain. Quite honestly, uh, even now to this day, there's certain situations that I get reminded of him. I'm like, yeah, that's a relationship you blew, Doug. <laughs> What can you do with it? Have you ever have you ever thought about reaching out to him? We have actually. Uh, we reached. We tried to have a conversation maybe about four years ago, and it just 
didn't the uh person that i was at the time that we had created the relationship that person was gone um this new version of me he's he didn't know i was just like a stranger so he kept it rolling like that yeah okay so then um when you were going down this this path of uh substance abuse were there any friends that you had prior to the usage that that decided to come to go down this road with you yeah there was a couple people that i brought down with me uh, one of my best friends got him hooked i also used to uh yeah wow. yeah there was a few people actually uh that got hooked up by some of the actions that i participated in in spanish uh my grandmother used to tell me, dime con quien andes y te digo quien eres. Show me who you surround yourself with and I'll tell you what kind of person you are. Hmm. They surrounded themselves with me thinking I was a positive influence when the reality was I was a negative influence. So, yeah. I recently learned a fact too, just because I think facts are cool, Dr. McDonald. Uh-huh. I found out that unfortunately um, they did the numbers and that for every individual who sold drugs, uh, 500 people die. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's an alarming stat. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit then about the impact um, your usage had on your family relationships. It's a great question. Um, my family relationships got completely ruined because of my uh, alcohol consumption, my opiate use um, disorder. I say that with a little bit of a smile now because they got ruined. Uh, They are being rebuilt. But at the time, I will put it this way. I was 20 years old, so about 12 years ago. My parents split up at the time. Um, Part of it was because of the – I I don't want to speak for them. My parents split up about 10 years ago. And uh, at that time, my mother was still letting me stay at her house. Uh, but because of the actions that I was taking and barely being at the house, uh, she told me, you got to go. And so she asked me to leave her house. Um, I left and I ran the streets for a little bit longer, got into some more hassle, some more trouble. Um, and I needed another place to lay low for a little bit. So I called my dad and my dad says, yeah, you could come stay with me as long as you're not using. Um, all right, that's a fair enough deal. I just won't use at your house. I'll use somewhere else. Right. Uh, went and stayed with him for a little bit of time, but our relationship deterred to the point where he was like, yo, you got to get out of my house too, man. Don't come back. Um, so at that point, I was sleeping in my vehicle, going to uh, different buildings that I could crash out at. Um, I have a younger sister. She's a couple years younger than me, and she is very important to me. Mm-hmm. About the same time frame, she was like, yo, stop talking to me. Um, I can't be around you. Um, you're really messed up. And that crumbled my world. It really made me hurt inside like, yo, um, I'm that far gone that even you don't want to be around me? <laughs> and she was like, yeah, you're that far gone. Um, so it ruined them, completely ruined them. Um, and now shoot 12 years later, me and my mom have a open relationship where we talk, but there's certain things that we don't talk about. Like there's boundaries, boundaries that we have to have in order to have a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, me and my dad, we barely talk, 
Uh, I still have communication with him, but there's there's problems there in our relationship because we haven't healed through some of the hurt mm-hmm. that has happened, mm-hmm. both that I caused. And, you know, it's a two-way street relationship. Uh, me and my sister, we have the best relationship, uh, mainly because that was the one that I focused on building first. Yeah. Uh, she, she She's really important. So uh, right now, all of them are good, but at the time, crumbled to nada, nilt, that oh nobody wanted to be around me. Wow. So then, um, so were you ever officially like diagnosed as being an addict? If, or is that, you know, is that a thing where you get a... <laughs> oh, got you. Okay. So no, they actually don't diagnose any, anybody as being an addict. Okay. Addict is a uh, term that was come up with, come up by society, uh, taken from addiction, basically. That is a person who has a uh, alcohol addiction, right? Um, and they didn't even get spoken to like that. That's alcohol addiction over there, drunk, mm-hmm. uh, heroin addiction. So addict comes from just shortening that whole term. Uh, the clinically direct or clinically proper terms that they want us to use is person first um, disorders. So if you're interacting with somebody who over drinks, that's an individual who has alcohol use disorder. If you're interacting with somebody who uh, uses cocaine a little bit too much, that's a person with cocaine use disorder. Okay. Um, that's the way they want it described now. Yeah, no problem. I still get it. I, I fail at it, honestly. I'm like, yeah, I went from addict to author. And people look at me like, Miku, you can't say that anymore. I'm like, <laughs> but it's it's my tagline, though. <laughs> uh, so, yes, it's something that I'm working on. But that's the, that's the uh, politically correct terms. Okay. Was I ever diagnosed? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I am not a fan of... Uh, Doctors, not a fan. Like like clinicians, physicians. I've never had good experiences with them. Um, So whenever I remember going to a treatment center once, and the guy was like, "Yeah, your son, he's strung out." Told my mom, "I'm like, thanks, bro. That's that's nice." Um, But I like actually on paperwork. No, I made it a point to make sure that I never went on paperwork. Mainly because there is um, outcomes. You get treated a certain way whenever you're in a medical facility and you have that type of paperwork. Um, for instance, my hip replacements that I just recently took or got done, um, had I had opiate use disorder on my medical history, they wouldn't have given me any type of painkillers other than Tylenol. Um, so there is a whole different realm to this stuff when you're playing this game that you don't even know. Um, so no, I made sure to keep all of my stuff off paperwork because one, that's the way I was raised. You just stay off papers, no matter what, <laughs> you, don't, you don't put nothing on paperwork ever, ever. <laughs> Everything goes underneath right, your mama's right. name. Right. Right. Cause if they, like I say, if it's not in writing, it didn't happen. So exactly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And the other part is, uh, was the, the future aspect. I had this gut feeling like, look, you get into a car accident, say you change your life right now, you get into a car accident, they're still going to treat you as you were as a, as an addict. So why would you even want that? Like, no, nah, I'll go, I'll go deal with this stuff uh, other places. The other thing about um, being clinically diagnosed is they need that clinical diagnosis to refer you. Um, so I knew that if I never <laughs> fell under that stuff, they couldn't refer me. 
And okay. if they can't refer me, then they can't lock me up. They can't send me places that the system is built to send you for help. Um, so no. Wow. That's some um, pretty good um, insight on your part to, to um, make sure that you, I guess in, in essence, the, the, your paper trail is not one that is, um, is one that needs to, you know, be cleaned up later as you, as you started to make that turnaround. So, um, I want to hear a little bit about the, um, what triggered the need for the hip replacements. And I also want to hear about, um, like at what point or how old were you when you, I guess, in essence, hit rock bottom? Cool. Um, the rock bottom question I'll address first, uh, on 27, 26, 27, when I hit rock bottom, uh, didn't have anybody around. That was actually my 27th birthday. Um, didn't have nobody around. I was just broke up with the girl that I was seeing. She was tired of me drinking all the time. I take in some time off of work and I was drinking day in and day out. And I told you guys earlier that my sister was really important to me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this birthday was one of the breaking moments because, uh, I lived a life that just wasn't safe and wasn't healthy. I'll put it that way. I also have uh, people out there who aren't a fan of me and they don't live by the rules that I live by. So there was some other things going on in my life, uh, where I was very paranoid. Mm. Um, this specific day I got up, I went and got my drink, came back to the house. I wasn't going to do anything. It was my birthday. I was just going to get drunk. I didn't know that I had previously made an agreement with my sister and my mom that I'd have a meal with them. Um, I got spaced out on making that uh, arrangement. So, um, that afternoon I drank all day that afternoon. Um, I wake up because my mom's inside the place that I'm at, the the building that I'm staying at and I'm sleeping on this cot at the time. And she's like, son, and something just told me just to look, not, not react because I kept a gun with me all the time at that point. Uh And I was I'm sorry, I still am a shoot first, ask questions later individual. That's the way that I functioned. Okay. So at this time, uh, I remember I look up and I thought it was a dream that my mom was there. And I was just like, oh, having this conversation, like, yeah, we're here to take you to to eat. Uh, Your sister's here, but she saw that gun and, and she's real scared. That was a significant moment for me because my hand was on the gun. I was ready to go. I didn't care who was coming through the house and that, yo, it was my little sister. That was the first person that walked through the house. Um, And she walked back out and called my mom. I was like, yo, Nico's passed out. He's got his gun on him. I don't know what to do. So that's when my mom came into the house when she got there. So that was a very rock bottom moment was, yo. You're you're that bad, dude. Like <laughs> you're you're that you're that far gone that you think everybody's out to get you. And at the time, you know, there was a couple people who were, but not anything significant. Right. Wow. Wow. Like sleeping with your hand on the trigger. That yeah, that could that could have potentially ended poorly. Very poorly. Yeah. And that would have been horrible. So that was a rock bottom moment. Okay. And all on top of that, they came into a building that, that like was it was an abandoned building that I was staying in. So it wasn't even like it was a 
it's not like it was a, a room that they walked into. They walked into a building that had trash all over the place, bottles. I had my cot, my hot plate. Yeah. yeah. And is that yeah. your living was that your living arrangement at the time? That was yeah. okay. I um just real quick story. I had an uncle who um who was um you know in the overindulged in alcohol and he used to have a sofa behind a liquor store in Los Angeles and that was called his office. So, you know, when we, when my family wanted to find him, you know, the first place to check was his office. Like I said, it was a sofa behind the liquor store. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, with, with that being uh, rock bottom for you, is that, um, is that in any way tied into like your wake up call? Like, what was it that kind of like made you realize I need to do things differently? Um, no, that ties into the, no, that unfortunately that wasn't part of my wake up call. That was a guider into my wake up call. Uh, um, but my wake up call happened when I couldn't move one morning, um, a few, probably about a year, a few months after that, started putting stuff together, uh, got myself, I still live in that building, that abandoned building. It's it. I still live here. Um, I just remodeled it. The, uh, I say that because I moved into some other rooms, right? I started clearing out space and started taking over this property. Uh, and in that, in that I started feeling better. So I stopped drinking, but when I stopped drinking, my body started to hurt a lot. Um, and I realized some of the damage that I caused to it. Uh, one morning I wake up and I couldn't move. Like I could sit up, but I couldn't move my legs. I'm like, what the heck's going on? I could wiggle my toes. I could bend my left knee. I could lift that up, but my right leg wasn't. I couldn't lift it up. Couldn't bend my knee. I couldn't do anything. And I feel, I feel something like loose. Um, and my understanding is that my hip popped out when I was sleeping, and I couldn't move until I popped it back in. So I had to pop my hip back into place on my own. Wow. That was a moment that I was just like, hey, um, something's, something's messed up. So I, I don't know that I would know that it was out of, out of like, no, I don't know that I would even know that it was out of socket or, or how to push it back in. Okay. So you, so you had to push your, your hip back in the socket. Yeah. And that, and then after that, like I'm, I'm unable to walk. Sitting down to use the restroom is difficult for me. Uh, and like daily living, quality of life had tremendously dropped. I couldn't walk upstairs. Um, like you know, when you climb up the stairs, you do it's called the crossover. Yes. I couldn't do that. Mm. Um, I had to walk upstairs sideways. I couldn't move my legs. Like high knees, I couldn't get high knees up whatsoever. I could move my feet like vertically two, three inches off the ground. Um, and that's when I was like, yo, something's really got to change, Nico. Because the other side of this is um, I've done a lot of things to put myself, my life at risk. And I've seen a lot of other individuals do the same actions that I sit here today Um that even sat there afterwards, well, to me, was the indicators. 
when I when I <laughs> when I had the time to sit down, Doctor McDonald, I really assess like, yo, what are you doing? Let's let's put these facts in place. And facts are, you shouldn't be where you're at right now. I know a lot of people say that, but I actually got doctor's note to prove it. Like what I went through, there's not a there's a one percent success rate. And that's a huge fact. That was one of the things that they told me. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge fact, right? But that means that there's a reason that I'm here. So, back so up, for me, I... Back up. One of the things you went through in the 1% success rate, what was it that you went through and the success rate of what? Oh, so the success rate is being alive. Okay. Um, the amount of narcotics that I consumed the narcotics that I was consuming, the frequency and volume that I would consume them at. Then in addition to that, the way that I got uh, to my definition of sober and that I've maintained sobriety. Um, All of that stuff combined had a 1% shot of being successful. Okay. And I did it. Apparently. That, I, I, I had to get out of my own ego because, look, I'm not... I, I'm not a superhero. I'm not Superman. There's, I'm not bulletproof. That's not why I made it through all these things. I made it through all these things because there's somebody else who needs to avoid this pain. There's somebody else who's going to do something greater than I've ever done. And they need to hear my story so that they can avoid that path. So they don't follow down that route uh, when life gets difficult so that they don't have to rely on healing themselves through these poisons that we have available to us. Like that's that's where I'm here because I know that there's somebody who's going to hear me at some point in my life, right. and their life is going to be changed, and that's the purpose for mine. All right. So when I came to that realization and I accepted that my life is no longer my own, it is an offering to this world of what not to do, um, how to solve problems in proper, healthy ways. Uh-huh. That's what really made me change. Um, that's what made my my life change. And that's what caused me to get my hips replaced. Um, so you had asked earlier, and I don't want you to, I don't want to glance over it or miss it. Um, I chose to get my hips replaced because uh, I realized that I have value to add to this world. I realized that when I got my hips replaced, I could travel and I can go tell story. I can inject hope into communities that I could stand and walk, strut. And tell people, look, I don't care what your bad choices were. You could you could walk tall too. Right. Your stuff could hurt in the past, but it doesn't have to hurt forever. There's ways out of this. And so when I came to that realization, like, yo, I need to get my hips replaced so that I could be the best offering out there. That's what really got this uh, whole movement started. This whole thing uh, changed. And that's that's when I found purpose. That's when I found value in myself. That's when I found like, oh, shoot, you're a plethora of knowledge for for a whole group of individuals who doesn't have to feel pain anymore because you solve it for them. Absolutely. So I, I want to hear. OK, so there's a few things. One, I want to hear about your definition of sober. And I want to hear, like, you know, what would you um, what advice would you give uh, college students that are trying to mix academic life with um, with drinking? But let's start off with your definition of sober and um, and how you've re- recovered. 
Got it. Great question. Um, my definition of sober is different than probably. Oh, you actually even said it. Your definition. You never touched a drop. Um, that I, I admire people like that, Doctor. So thank you. You encouraged me by saying that. Um, my definition of sober means that I do not ingest or inject or consume any type of narcotic, whether that's legal or illegal. Um, I also do not consume any type of caffeine other than coffee. Um, I don't consume, um, certain sugars. There's like certain things that I just don't eat, like fast food to me is a substance. So my definition of sober, I do not eat any type of fast food. Um, my definition of sober, I only consume water and coffee. I'll drink juices and teas um, every once in a while, but they have to, they can't have too much caffeine. My definition of sober doesn't include any type of nicotine in it. Um, but that's, that's my definition of sober. Uh, Really what I come to the, what I have come to the realization of is that people think sober is abstaining. And I'm like, well, if you're abstaining, then you got to abstain from lots of things because, um, the definition, I'm sorry, not the definition. One of the indicators of substance use is a definition of substances is a mind altering chemical, a mind altering substance. Mm. Well, caffeine alters your mind. Yeah. Sugar alters your mind. Yep. <laughs> um, Tylenol alters your mind. The sages that people put out there alter your mind. There's there's things that we have that aren't drugs that alter our minds. And when I read that, I was like, shoot. Even these people who were supposed to be guiding me into a path of recovery, they're sitting there with five, six monsters a day. I'm like, nah, you just replaced your addiction. That's all you did. Mm, that's good. And that I wasn't okay with that personally. I wasn't okay with exchanging out a, a spoon that I cook my dope on for a fork that I eat my food with. Yeah, like, I can't find comfort in those things. And for me, defining sober means what am I, what am I seeking to get immediate gratification from, and do I need to? Because sober means, hey, I'm, I'm prepared and ready to go. That's what sober means to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not in any want. I'm not in any need for things. If I choose to consume, it's by choice. So my definition of sober is nothing mind-altering, um, legal or illegal. Wow, that's a that's a pretty high standard there. Oh, yeah. I barely meet it, too. Don't get me wrong. There's a bag of candy in there that I got earlier. <laughs> and I'm like, yo, who's going to give me a Reese's cup? Like, really? I'm going to smash this whole thing. But I've also learned that, you know, I, I know that probably tomorrow I'm going to feel bad. My body's going to feel bad about it. My brain's going to misfire. I'm probably going to have a headache. Okay. These are the, the gives and takes, right? It's changed. Wow. Okay. So, um, so on this side of your journey, oh, I know, I'm sorry, let me, let me uh, back up and ask you. So tell me a little bit about, um, were you ever, um, did the substance use at all interfere with your college life? And if so, like how? Oh, so I went to college twice. I had two freshman years. Um, I went to freshman year when I was 18. Um, and yeah, 
And at that point, I was already, I, I was moving drugs. I was, I was a drug dealer at that time. I also worked a full-time job as a construction worker. Um, <clears throat> so when I went to school, I had to go do that freshman orientation. They take you through all this stuff. And I was just like, yeah, this, this isn't for me. Let me find some new customers and get up out of here. Um, that, yeah, that's that's how I perceived it. Um, that's how I saw my, my schooling was this is a place where I can find some new customers, whether that was for construction because their parents needed some work or that was them because they needed to play with their nose, smoke something, whatever it was, I could supply it. Um, so I didn't have an interest in school. Um, it really interfered with school. Uh, in addition to that, I lost a full ride scholarship like two years prior to that. I'm sorry, a year prior to that. In my senior year, I lost a full ride scholarship for wrestling. Um, and I threw that away because I was like, yo, I don't need to go to school. Uh, I'm just going to sell drugs. <laughs> that, that's, that was my mentality. Um, it's easy money and I'm good at it. So it interfered a lot. Um, it stopped me from going to school, actually. Then um, after I dropped out of college, I go back to school when I'm um, 30, I'm sorry, 28, uh, 28, 29. So about three years ago, I went back to school. I graduated last year bachelor's in business yeah a bachelor's check this one out doc i got a bachelor's in business without uh paying for it my my school was completely free i graduated uh with honors cum laude and on the dean's list what? so yeah Wait a minute what a, what a change of events from laying in an abandoned building Embracing that abandoned abandoned building as home, um, sleeping with your finger on the trigger, to graduating cum laude, like yeah. you have apparently regained your ability to focus. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. And substances had an influence on that too. Um, not because I was taking them, but because I was adamant about recovering what it had taken from me. Mm. There was no way that it was going to go ahead and rob. It wasn't just me that it robbed. Like, I know I'm smart. I don't need a degree to tell me that. Like, <laughs> I personally was like, I, I know I'm smart. I know how to hustle. I don't need a piece of paper that tells me this. Like, but the world needed to understand it. And more importantly, my mom wanted a degree. So part of my journey was to make sure that she got a degree too. Um, so when I graduated, that was her gift. I gave her my degree and I said, we're done. I'm finished with school. I don't need to do this anymore. Uh, and I did it because I wanted to show everybody that I could. Um, so substances had a huge influence on that portion because I was like, watch this. I'm not only a best-selling author. <laughs> I did that before I, I graduated school. Now I'm a bachelor's with honors. I'm looking at some of the people that were looking down on me in the past. Like, yo, what's up? My chest a little bit more out. How you living, dog? Did you graduate with honors? And uh, yeah, so I, substances had a huge influence on that as well. Um, not for the use of them, but because I was adamant that I wasn't going to lose everything that it had taken from me. All right. So you talked about this best-selling author. Tell tell us about your book. What what what's the title, and um, what will what will students or um, or anyone for that matter get when they when they read it? 
Oh, great. Thank you for letting me plug this in. Um, the book is called Five Things to Know Before You Get Sober. Um, it can be purchased on Amazon. If you type in that, five things to know before you get sober. Mm-hmm. It could also be purchased at nohalonm.com. What you'll get out of there um, is the five things that I believe anybody should know before they attempt sobriety. And those five things are it's a choice. It's uncomfortable. You're going to get to know yourself. You're vulnerable during the transition. And there is a joy in recovery. Mm. Those are five things that I believe anybody should know before they get sober. Um, The readers can know that I took all of that stuff from my own lived experience, um, alcohol, opiates. I've also stopped using uh, crack. I smoked out for a little bit. So in all of these high-level drugs, acid, I've taken that for a while too. I say that because... Out of all those drugs, I saw these five common traits happen. Like every time I had to make a choice and it was super uncomfortable um, to go through the withdrawals period. Uh, I got to know myself better each time. And you know, I was vulnerable during that transition, but there was joy each time I did it. Um, and now I can say that that's just a part of my life. It's not my life anymore. And it's a part that I can share with readers. Um, so if you're looking for insights on what you should do before you get sober, or if you have somebody that you care about, that you love, love and is struggling with one of these use disorders, get it for them. Um, it's from lived experience. It's best way, the best, I'm sorry, the best uh, review that I've received from it so far is it was like my cousin was dropping me off to rehab. I was like, yes, that's, that's, that's the point right there. That is the point. Wow. This is exciting. So, um, that's a huge win. Um, writing, writing a book is a huge win. Um, how do you celebrate, you know, um, successes or, or wins in life? You know, so many people associate alcohol with, um, you know, celebration. So how do you celebrate wins? It's a great question. Um, I am still learning how I celebrate wins, mainly because that's part of my self-care process. I'm not very good at celebrating myself. What I have learned to do is uh, take myself to a nice meal. Um, I usually like to try something that I haven't tried before. Um, That's one of the ways that I like to celebrate that I have the opportunity to experience a new experience. Uh, To me, that's something to celebrate. Um, I hope that everybody takes this within context because, uh, I have lived a life that is different than a lot of other people's. So the way that I celebrate is a lot different than a lot of other people too. Um, but I call it ink therapy. Um, I like to go get tattoos. That's how I celebrate. Um, yeah. So that, that's what I do personally. It's get a meal, get a tattoo, get back to work. Get a meal and get a tattoo. Okay. So I want to know your favorite place to eat and I want to know your favorite tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, favorite place to eat. Uh, shoot, man. That's, that's a difficult one because I think it goes on um, types of food. <laughs> right now, one of my favorite places to go to is called Gobble This. It's in Old Town, um, New Mexico. It's in the center of Albuquerque. Um, my buddy owns it and he's Salvadorian. So he cooks a bunch of Salvadorian food. 
Um, that's one of my favorite places to go right now. And mainly because the homie owns it. So I can just slide up in there like, yo, what's up? Let me get that seat in the back. He's like, go for it, Nico. It's called uh, so it's Gobble all, This? Yeah. Okay. Gobble This is the name of it. Um, so that's one of my favorite places to eat. Uh, favorite tattoo? I do not have a favorite tattoo, actually. I have many tattoos all over my body. One that means the most to me uh, would probably be a saying that's – I got – my grandmother gave me a lot of sayings, and I got a lot of tattoos of her sayings. Okay. <laughs> uh, one of the first ones that I got, though, because it meant so much to me, was free to be. Mm. She used to tell me, Nicolas, you're free to be whatever you want to be. Whatever you want to be, you are free to be. So I share that with you guys, especially since you're college freshmen. You're free to be whatever you want to be. So what is it that you want to be? Because you're free to be. All right. I like it. So in um, so a couple of things uh, I wanna if you want if you want to share, please do your social media. If anybody could, if, if you know, where can we find you on social media? And then uh, we'll switch into like your your final parting words. Cool. Uh, my socials you can find me on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook at no underscore Halo NM. Um, that's the word N O underscore Halo, like an angel has a halo, and mm -hmm. M like New Mexico or Nico Morales. <laughs> either way works. All right. Uh, the name of the book again. The name of the book is Five Things to Know Before You Get Sober. Five Things to Know Before You Get Sober, and you can find that on Amazon. And then, final parting words. Final parting words. Um, you are an amazing human being who adds tons of value to the community that you're in. That community requires you to be the best version of yourself. Whatever that means at that point in time, that's what we need you to be. No one's expecting you to be perfect. You weren't created to be an angel. It's okay to have no halo. Amen. I love it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Academic Survival. I know that um, this will, you, you have so many nuggets in here. So I know that this um, has the potential to be life-changing to a student, uh, to someone in their community or anyone else who may listen. So thank you so much for joining and I'll see you next time. Thank you for having me. That's it for today on Academic Survival. If you want to share your story on how you survived your freshman year of college, you can reach me at info at chandralmcdonald.com. We'll be back next week with more ways to survive your academic journey. Until then, happy studying.